Are we live? Okay. Yes. After some technical difficulties, we are live now uh, on uh, Sunday morning, Sunday before Christmas. So Merry Christmas. We're almost there. Unfortunately, we're not able to gather as a congregation this morning. Deacons and I made the, the call about halfway through this week uh, because we've got uh, COVID cases in close proximity to our church. And so we felt there's any time sort of during this pandemic, uh, this week is going to be the time where it's wisest not to gather. So uh, not gathering as a church this morning, but uh, still wanted to share the sermon for this week uh, over live. So glad we have the technology to be able to make that work. And uh, uh, just like a couple of weeks ago during the power outage, this sermon will be available in the, the typical places to listen to the audio as well. Just to update you on, on plans for this coming week, the deacons and I haven't made uh, uh, a decision in terms of our Christmas Eve service um, or a service this coming Sunday. We're, we're hoping to be able to have both of those services, so we'll let you know about the details of those um, and if they'll be modified, um, what those modifications will be. So just stay tuned in the typical places. We'll, we'll post announcements to the Facebook page and, and that kind of thing. So. Stay tuned this week for uh, uh, for updates as far as that's concerned. With the Advent candles going in the background, this is the fourth week of Advent, uh, and uh, this this uh, Thursday, I guess Christmas Eve, we'll light the center candle, the Christ candle, um, to celebrate Christ's. share with you the sermon for the fourth Sunday of Advent this year. We're, um, we're over a month out now from the presidential election, and, and Christmas is this week. So those, be, be ready, those twice a year political conversations with family are coming again this week. I, I may be misreading the political situation, but my sense of people's general mood is that of mistrust. We don't know if we can trust the numbers, we don't know if we can trust the guidelines, we don't know if we can trust the politicians. With, with the media and the political landscape the way it is, really all it takes to, to have a seed of doubt planted in your mind is to compare the two narratives that you're getting from both sides. and. They're so different, you know someone must be lying, or at least someone is misled. Our era is one of profound distrust in human authorities. Fortunately, as Christians, our hope is not in the word of men or in the promises of politicians. Scripture is clear-headed in its evaluation of human rulers and authorities. Even the best ones will find a way to let you down. Recently we read the prophet Isaiah's words, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The sure foundation on which we can stand, on which we can really feel secure, is not the word of any human being, but the word of God. When we really come to believe that, that God the great 
maker and king of all creation has said it, then that word becomes a rock that's firmer than Katahdin. Though everything else may wither and fade, the word of the eternal God must stand. So, say all that. To say that we're going to look this morning at a promise that God made. And this promise was about, of all things, a political dynasty. A political dynasty. No, this is not a promise that's going to be able to guarantee that your side wins out in the current political squabbles. This is a promise not about presidents, but about kings. About an eternal kingly line which began many years ago and culminated in the coming of King Jesus as a baby in a manger. Christmas is inherently political in that sense. It's the day when we celebrate King Jesus' first coming into the world. So, to prepare ourselves to understand the, the full weight of the meaning of Christmas, we're going to look at the promise of Jesus' eternal kingly reign buried deep in the Old Testament. A promise that was made years and years before his coming. And my hope is that this promise will give us pause. That it will lead us both to submit to Jesus' kingly reign and to hope in it. So let's, let's read the text of this promise together and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll jump in. The text this morning is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7 comes after 1 Samuel verses 1 through 17. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make great name, like the name of the great princes of the earth. 
and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all their enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you reveal yourself to us in your word this morning. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we ask that you give us a greater vision of yourself in the person of your Son, Jesus. You give us a grand view a grander view of your plan across history which led to his coming at Christmas. By your Spirit, make our hearts ready to see and to celebrate Jesus this morning and throughout this Christmas season. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I've already said that the text we're going to look at this morning is a promise. It's a promise, and it's a political promise. It has to do with kings. When it comes to kings in Scripture, everyone's heard of David, right? David's the one who killed Goliath. He's the one who's the man after God's own heart. He's the sweet singer of Israel, right? He wrote much of the book of Psalms. So we're going to pick up on David's story about halfway through his, his story this morning, the book of 2 Samuel. And we're going to see, as we begin to work through the passage, that God made a promise to King David. It's already obvious if you listened at all as I read the passage. God made a promise to David. This is our big idea for this morning. God promised to build a royal house for David. God promised to build a royal house for David. And we're going to explore that promise this morning and see eventually that that promise leads us all the way forward. Christ's coming at Christmas. So we pick up the account in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we've just read. Verse 1. And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Stop there. David had spent his entire career up to this point fighting for the security of his people and the security of his reign over his people. But by chapter 7, 
he and his people had finally found some rest. Just a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 5, verse 11, we hear how once David had conquered Jerusalem, um, Hiram, the king of Tyre, came and built David a, a great temple. He didn't actually come, but he sent messengers with cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built a grand house for David in Jerusalem. And that's the house that David's now living in, in verse 1. There's peace for the moment with the surrounding nations, and he was content in a brand new house. Sitting in his brand new comfy, comfy house, smelling the fresh cedar, a question arises in David's mind. Verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And just prior to this passage, we, uh, we're told how David had brought the ark of the covenant, which was the, the seat of God's presence among his people, into Jerusalem. In the old covenant, God's presence among his people had to be walled off tabernacle, which just means dwelling place. And the ark, the ark of the covenant, which was a box with the tablets of the law in it, was kept safely in the tabernacle, in the tent, and that's where God's presence rested among his people. Over the ark of the covenant, in the tabernacle, among the people of God. And of course, in one sense, God is omnipresent. His presence is everywhere. But a special gift of his presence was given to his people over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. So this Ark of God's presence had just come into Jerusalem, sitting in the tent. And David sees a problem. He was living in this glorious house while the presence of God still lived in a tent. How is it right that the king should have a more glorious dwelling place than that's why he asks the question, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This seems like an obvious disparity with an obvious solution, right? Build a house for God. Build a temple. Verse 3, Nathan, the prophet, responds, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan was a prophet, and seeing this obvious disparity, he approved of the plan. Probably the Lord should have a house too. Apparently, Nathan the prophet hadn't actually consulted God on the, the matter because God corrected Nathan's advice to David. Verse 4, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my, my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? It seemed like a natural thing to do. Building a house for the ark, a temple, of cedar and stone. But it wasn't something that the Lord wanted David to do. And as we just read, he gives two reasons to David through the prophet Nathan. First, he didn't need it. 
and second, he had an absent for it. So, first he didn't need it. We see that in verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, and I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. The Lord had been able to move and work powerfully among his people for year after year without a temple, without a house for the ark. The tabernacle had sufficed. He didn't need it, and he hadn't asked for it. Perhaps more importantly, verse 7. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is a rhetorical question. Did I speak? Implied answer. record of the Old Testament shows that Israel got in trouble any time they began to worship God in ways other than he had specifically appointed. For something as holy as the presence of God, David should have waited for the express command of God to build the ark, the house. As fine as an idea as it was. One commentator put it this way, better a tent of God's appointing Hold on a minute. Beginning in verse 8, the Lord turns from rebuke to encouragement. Building the temple wasn't the right idea for this time, for David. But that didn't mean that the Lord was done with him. Instead of considering what David could do for God, God now reminds him of all that he'd done for David. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, you, you want to build something for me? Hold up a second. Everything you have, I gave you. And not just past tense, God goes on to make astounding future promises to David. Second half of verse 9. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This echoes the promise made back to, to Abraham in Genesis, David's forefather, many, many years before. Genesis 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. The promise being made here to David is on par with that previous promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham was that God would make a great nation from his descendants. Now, that nation went on to become the nation of Israel. So that was the promise to Abraham. God's promise to David is now that he would bless Israel. God would bless Israel by blessing David. That God would fulfill his promises to prosper Abraham's people, Israel, through the prospering of David as their king. Second half of verse 9 again here. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Great name for David, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place 
and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. It's a great promise. Through David, God was going to bless his people Israel, Abraham's family, by giving them rest. The promises that David here in in 2 Samuel 7 are often called the Davidic Covenant. Davidic Covenant. We've talked a lot about covenants recently. Covenant is a contract, a legal agreement between two parties. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Promises are made. To Abraham, God had covenanted that he would make, make of him a great nation and bring him into the promised land. Now to David, God was covenanting that he would establish, like I said, establish Abraham's people and make him David into a great king. Abraham's people were going to be blessed through David's great kingship. It's key to notice here that there's a, it's kind of a turning point. Not only did God promise that he would establish David's but he would also establish all those descendants that would come after him. Verse 11. Moreover, oh wait, there's more. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. A house. David wasn't going to be the only king to reign over Israel's people. God was raising up, through David, a whole household of kings to reign over Israel. It's kind of, a, kind of an ironic turn of phrase, an ironic way to put it, right? We started out the passage with David wanting to build a house for God, but now God turns around and promises that he would build a house for David. Same word in Hebrew. Now, not a physical house, right? David already had a great palace. By house, God means David's household, his family, his descendants that were to come after him. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. A house. That was God's covenant promise to David. A great house. It's a big idea. God promised to build a royal Some people break their promises. Business deals and marriage covenants are broken. But God isn't like that. God's covenant promises always stand. The, the one God who made heaven and earth is a God of his word. And to this day, God's covenant with David still stands. God promised to build a royal house for David. And he still holds to that promise. I hope to show you as we study this passage that God's covenant promise to David still stands. And though David is long gone, God fulfilled his promise to David at Christmas. And he's still fulfilling it through Christ. God promised to build a royal house for David. What exactly does that mean? 
What kind of house was God intending to build for David? You see five things that God promised to David about this house, about this royal line. First, God promised to build a house that would continue, a house that would continue after David. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Again here, the Lord is not just raising up um, David, in his generation, right? He was raising up a whole family to come after him, a whole line of descendants who would continue long after him. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. David, your descendants are going to reign long after you're gone. That's the first promise. Secondly, God promised to build a, a house which would then in turn build God's house. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. First, God told David, don't build my house, I'll build yours, right? I'll build this royal line which will extend after you. But then God also promised David, I'll build up a house out of your descendants that will then go and build my house. And it's not just David's descendants generally here. God had a specific man in mind. Verse 13 notice the word, he. He shall build. 1 Kings chapters 5 through 8 detail of who the, who the he was here. David's offspring, and the first generation after him, his son, Solomon, built God a temple. God built David a house, which then in turn built God a house for the Ark of the Covenant, Solomon's temple. And Solomon did build it. He built this glorious, grand temple. And Solomon acknowledged that his temple was actually the fulfillment of this promise back in 2 Samuel. In 1 Kings 8, verse 20, Solomon prayed these words, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the clear example here. God makes the promise. God comes through on the promise. He built David's house in the first generation to build the great temple, a house for his name. So we saw that God promised to build a house that would continue, a house that would build God's house. Third, a house which would be disciplined. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. David's offspring, including Solomon, would have all the benefits of a child of God, including the benefit of discipline. David's descendants were being promised God's everlasting blessing, but they would still be responsible to walk the line. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. This promise of discipline was reiterated to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. The Lord appeared to him, as, re as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. 
And this is what the Lord said to Solomon. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But, here's the part of the discipline, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments, my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel become a proverb and a byword among all nations. Basically, the, the discipline that God promised David's descendants was exile. If they wandered from God, the whole nation would be thrown out of the land that they were promised. And this is this is not a new threat. This is the discipline that God promised all the way back in, in Deuteronomy. This is the, the discipline that was promised. Israel, if you stray, you won't be able to stay in the land. God promised to build a house that would be disciplined. Note, however, that the discipline that God promised to David and to Solomon didn't include going back on his promise to establish David's offspring. The promise was that if David's line went astray, the whole nation would be cast out of the land. The glory of the temple would be reduced to rubble, but no mention is made of David's offspring, his line. The promise was not that David's line would be cut off and dissipated. In fact, as we're going to see next, God is explicit in his covenant with David that despite the need for discipline, David's line would endure. We saw that God promised to build a house which would continue, a house which would build God's house, a house which would be disciplined. Fourthly here, a house which would not be abandoned. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, verse 15 here, listen to this, my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Saul was David's predecessor. Uh, if you read the accounts, the account in 1 Samuel, Saul disobeyed God. His line was cut off. None of his descendants ever reigned on the throne of Israel. He was put away from God's people. But not so with David's line, God assures him. As much as David's descendants might stray, and they would, God's steadfast love would not depart from David's descendants. As we follow the story after this promise, we find... Again, just look at the first generation. This was the case with Solomon. He strayed from God's ways, but he was not abandoned. Um, if you read Solomon's record in 1 Kings, you'll find he did stray a big time. He married a number of, of foreign wives who didn't know God. 
and they led his heart astray from the Lord. First uh, Kings 11, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Later in that chapter, as a kind of form of discipline, as a consequence, uh, the kingdom is actually divided because of Solomon's disobedience. And even then, even then, in discipline, just like I promised, even then in discipline, the throne was not fully taken from David's descendants. This is uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 36. So this is God. Yet to his son, Solomon's son, I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. God promised to discipline God's house, but never to abandon them, never to remove his love from them. God promised to build a house, fourthly here we've seen, that would not be abandoned. Five points is more than I'll say them all again here. God covenanted. He promised to build David a house which would continue, a house which would build God's house, a house which would be disciplined, a house which would not be abandoned. Finally here, God promised to build David a house which would continue forever. This is maybe the most important point um, coming out from this promise. God promised to build David a house which would continue forever. It says this a couple of times in this passage. Back in the beginning, second half of verse 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Period. Similarly in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God covenanted, he promised a solemn oath that David's house, David's kingdom, David's throne would continue forever. The phrase here in Hebrew is ad olam, unto eternity. Your throne shall be established unto eternity. When your descendants stray, they'll be disciplined, but your throne will never be torn down. Unto eternity, God has sworn that he will keep a descendant of David on the throne of David. That's the promise. God has promised to build the royal house for David. It's the main point of the passage. A couple of questions come up at this point in terms of application. First, what on earth does any of this have to do with Christmas? And secondly, what on earth does any of this have to do with me? So we'll take those two questions one at a time. First, what on earth does any of this have to do with Christmas? Christ's birth at Christmas was the long-awaited resolution Years and years and years of wondering if God would actually keep his promise to David. If he would actually keep his promise to establish a royal house that would last 
forever. It looks pretty dicey for a while, if, if you read the rest of the Old Testament. David's descendants wandered from God's ways, they led the people astray, and eventually, just as he promised, God disciplined them by sending them into exile. He used the might of these great foreign nations to wrench his people out from their land and to tear down their cities and even their temples. So sitting in exile, and then for long years afterwards, the people must have wondered, what about David? What about the promise? Will God follow through on his promise? Now that his line has disappeared into obscurity and, and no son of David reigns in Jerusalem, how will God keep his everlasting promises? That was the question his people were asking. And through the prophets, from the years leading up to the coming of Christ, the answer came to wandering Israel. The day was coming when God would fulfill his promises. The day was coming when God would raise up before Israel, before the whole world, a descendant of David who would reign again forever and bring peace to Israel and to the whole world. God's uniform message in the Old Testament prophets is that a son of David, just as David was anointed, this, this one would be anointed, the Messiah means anointed, the son of David would soon be coming to reign. So I want to read you a few verses from the prophets that explicitly speak about the coming of this son of David. This, this throne of David is going to be reestablished, even though it's been torn down. And all of these prophecies were made after David, years after David, and years before the Isaiah 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amos 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. According to the prophets, the day was coming time was near that God would raise up again from David's line a king who would shepherd Israel and restore his people. The promises that God made 
to David in this passage were not broken in the exile. They were still in effect. And one day they would be fulfilled in the return of the king. I promise we are getting to Christmas here. According to the prophets, God's promises to David awaited a future fulfillment in the Messiah who was coming soon. And on Christmas, so why Christmas is such a celebration. And on Christmas, he showed up. The promised king, the son of David, the Messiah, was born in Bethlehem. The gospel accounts are so clear in making this connection. Matthew and Luke both go so far as to take up a whole chapter, tracing Christ's earthly genealogy back to David, showing Jesus is a descendant of David. Even physically, Jesus was attached to this line. Jesus was David's offspring. Over and over, in Christ's birth account, in Matthew and in Luke, we're reminded that Joseph, Christ's stepfather, was of the house of David. And that even in Bethlehem, the city he was born in, was the city of David. After long years of waiting, a new king had come to sit on the throne of David. So, what does this promise in 2 Samuel have to do with Christmas? Everything. This promise, buried deep in the Old Testament, promised an eternal royal house for David, and Jesus is the answer to that promise. Jesus came as the conquering king, come to take back David's throne. Of course, Jesus wasn't merely a human king. He wasn't just another one in that long line of flawed Davidic kings that we read about in the book of Samuel, the book of Kings. The story of David's descendants as told in Scripture is, is a lesson in the untrustworthiness of sinful human rulers. If you think politics is messy now, read the books of First and Second Kings. David's descendants were a mess. Even David was a mess at times. Jesus came not just as a rerun of those old kings, but as a new and a better king. A descendant of David heir to the Davidic line and promises, but also in the mystery of the Incarnation. And this is the wonder of Christmas. He was God himself in human form. Sinful human kings could never have reigned eternally. Discipline and exile were always inevitable for David's line, as, as long as the kings in David's line were sinful human beings. It was inevitable that he'd be sent into exile. God's plan all along was to show his people their need for a better king. Through these flawed Old Testament kings, which he disciplined. And his plan all along was to fulfill his promise to David by sending a better king, a more perfect heir. Christ is that heir. Christ came into the world in humility. He was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a woman. 
He was and he still is truly man and truly God. He's more than a human king. He lived a holy life, sinless. He's victorious over every temptation. He spent the years of his ministry teaching, preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And at the height of his ministry, he entered Jerusalem before the Passover, and the streets were lined with people, crowds hailing him as the coming king, the returning king. But the culmination of King Jesus' ministry, some 30-odd years after his birth at Bethlehem, and only days after his triumphal entry to the cheering crowds, was the crucifixion outside the gates of Jerusalem. Instead of a glorious victory and coronation, the crowd turned on him, and at the goading of the Jewish authorities, they shouted, Crucify him. And on the cross, written in three languages, was the mocking inscription, This is the King of the Jews. This is He died. Christ died. And none of it was accidental. In the Apostle Peter's words, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. God's plan and Christ's joy for David's heir to go to the cross bearing the shame crucified. This is Christ's way of building his kingdom. But not just dying. On the third day he rose again from the dead. Proclaiming Christ's resurrection on the day of Pentecost, quoting the words of King David himself, Peter explained the necessity of Christ's resurrection, his coming alive from the dead, and the light of God's promise to David that we study this morning. This is Acts chapter 2, 30 and 31. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, knowing this promise to David, verse 31, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The Lord's promise to David was fulfilled both at Christmas and at Easter. Both in Jesus' coming into the world as the king and in his resurrection. By his birth, he restored the Davidic line that was broken. He made good on God's promise not to abandon David's line. By his resurrection, Jesus ensured that God's promise of an eternal reign on David's throne would never end. He defeated death. And he will personally ensure, by his triumphant reign, that David's throne will last forever. He's the eternal king, unbound by death. Christ rose again from the dead, and he lives still. He's seated at the right hand of God, in God's presence in heaven. That's what this promise has to do with Christmas. It has everything to do with Christmas. 
Final question. What does any of this have to do with me? If you're not a Christian, it's a natural question to ask. The promise that was made to David was made so many years ago. And it was made to a king and to a nation that's halfway around the globe. What, what difference is any of this supposed to make to me? But whether you know it or not, God's promise to David's offspring directly affects you. Here's why. God has promised an eternal kingdom to David's offspring. And Jesus is that offspring. Jesus reigns even now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And scripture promises that he will reign forever. The day is coming when Christ will return, not in the humility of Bethlehem, but with the glory of the angels and power. And he will reign forever. Sitting in a nativity scene, baby Jesus seems uncontroversial. But there in the manger the great was the great king, who will one day return to reign eternally, and to whom we will all God's promised that Jesus will reign eternally. That's the promise to David. There are no term limits for an eternal king. God promised to build a royal house for David, one that would last eternally, and he will make good on his promise through Christ. Jesus is the eternal king. We all have to reckon with For the Christian, this is a great hope. Because of Christ's death, we've been forgiven by faith in Him. We're part of His kingdom. And, and though everything else in this life may fail or fade away, we have a sure hope, a steady anchor for our souls, in trusting in the, the reign of this eternal King. Everything else may fall apart, but we still say, Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He reigns over all. And if we belong to him, that means that, that the eternal king is actually holding on to us. And that he will hold on to us, even to life everlasting. The eternal reign of Jesus is a sure and a steady anchor for those who know him. It's a great hope. We've seen that kind of hope at work in our congregation this year. Through many trials, we've seen Christian people steadied by the unending love and never-ending reign of King Jesus. When you know that Jesus reigns forever and is holding on to you and will for eternal for eternity, it's incredibly freeing. God promised to build a royal house for David. Real good news for those who know Jesus. It's great hope for the Christian. If you're not a Christian, you need to consider God's promise to David too. You need to know that Jesus Christ is the King, the ruler of all creation. He's coming back soon to set up his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And your Either belief 
or non-belief in him doesn't have any bearing on whether or not he's the real deal. His reign is an objective fact. And no matter what you feel about it, you will give an account to him one day. So the question becomes, what have you done with Jesus? He's easy to disregard in this life. And a lot of people do it. It's much easier to focus on the visible, the rulers, and the, the cares of this life that are seen. But remember what I said when we started quoting Isaiah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The things which seem most solid in this life are but a vapor. So much of what we spend our days obsessing over will not matter in the next life. People die and empires fall. There's one thing which will always stand, and that's God's word. And God has promised that Jesus will reign eternally on David's throne. The day is coming, either when we die or when he returns, that we will have to give an account when he returns, will you be found in rebellion against the king? The truth of the matter is that we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Any one of us, just by ourselves, on our own, would find ourselves condemned on the day that Christ returns. We've all disregarded our God and our king in word, in thought, in deed. Either by active rebellion, or by passive indifference, we thumbed our nose at our God and our King. And the wages of sin is death. The fruit of our rebellion is exile from the kingdom and eternal punishment. And praise be to God. He's merciful and He's gracious. The wonder of Jesus is that our King came in love to die that we might live. Jesus came into the world in humility as a baby, to live as a man, to die on the cross, so that by faith in him, our sins can be forgiven and we can receive the gift of eternal life. The king came at Christmas in humility to save. The king is coming again, and he will come in glory and in power and in judgment. God will keep his promise to David. He kept it in spite of Israel's sin. He fulfilled it at Christmas, and he will keep his promise to David forever. Jesus will reign eternally. He is the king. What have you done with Jesus? What will you do with him? The word of God will stand forever. So it matters what you do with Jesus. This Christmas season, as we enjoy the comforting traditions and the company of family, my prayer is that we would remember the reason for the season. The reason is Jesus. Because I'm sure that baby Jesus was, was cute as a button. We don't celebrate Christmas because of a baby who was born who was cute. We celebrate Christmas because a baby was born who was the king. God became man and dwelt among us. He died for our sins. 
who was raised from the dead on the third day. He reigns even now in fulfillment of God's promises to David. And he will return one day in glory. Do you know him? I pray that if you don't, that you would. And I pray that if you do know Jesus, that you would look to Jesus this Christmas and find great comfort, great hope that in that manger lay a long-expected king. Let's pray. Father, your word is the sure foundation on which we seek to build our lives. We know that while so much around us can fade and fail, your word will not. You keep your promises. We thank you for the display of your covenant faithfulness that we celebrate at Christmas, that you do keep your promises, that you did keep your promise to David to put on his throne an eternal king. It's a wonder. It's amazing. It's why we celebrate. We trust too, Lord, that you will continue to keep your promise to David, that Jesus will reign eternally. And we look forward to that day when Christ will return and to set up his eternal kingdom, will reign in righteousness and holiness. And his people will be saved. Pray, Lord, for all of us who know Christ, that we'd be built up and encouraged by trusting incarnate king this Christmas. Pray for all those who don't know him, who are still apart from you, still in their sins. Pray, Lord, that uh, they'd come to know you, that you'd be at work in these hearts and these lives by your Holy Spirit, that this Christmas season would be a time of their salvation, that they would look in the face of incarnate Jesus and believe and live come to taste of that eternal hope which so many, so many of us have tasted. We thank you, Father, for your word and all the many ways that you bless us. Pray that you be with all those in our congregation who are sick or mourning or lonely this week. Pray for all those for whom Christmas, the Christmas season is a hard time, particularly this year. Pray that you comfort the hearts who mourn. We love you, Father. We thank you for the presence of your Spirit in this wonderful time of year when we're appointed to Jesus to celebrate him more and more. We ask that you bless the rest of this Lord's Day and the rest of this Christmas week to your glory and to our joy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, all. God bless you guys.